If you will please remain standing and open your Bibles now to the book of Revelation and chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, as we look this morning at the message to the church in Ephesus. That's Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. This is God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. Please give it your full attention. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. You may be seated. Beloved, this world lies in darkness. It is a dark place. But the true light, which gives light to everyone, has come into the world. And the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. 1 John 1, 9-10. Jesus tells Nicodemus, also in John chapter 3, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that the one who believes on him will not perish but have everlasting life. Now this is very astonishing because the world that God loved, John 3.16, was the darkness that God sent his son the light into, John 1.9. God loved the world, a world turned against him in darkness. Yet he sent his son to give them light. But then John 3.19 goes on to say that the light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. You see, this world loved darkness so much That it brutally killed by crucifixion the very Son of God. The the Son had come into the world, and as the light was exposing their evil deeds, they recognized that they did not love the light, 
but rather loved their evil deeds. They did not want their evil deeds exposed. They wanted to keep them hidden in the darkness. And so they committed the most evil deed of all. They killed the Lord of glory. They thought that they had put out the light. They thought they had overcome him or conquered him. Yet it was in his very death that he overcame the world. And beloved, his light is still shining in this world. Because as our risen and glorified high priest, he walks among his lampstand churches and tends to them so that they might continue burning and thus reflecting his light in this dark world. But just as the world hated Christ, the true light, so it hates his church, which reflects his glorious light. If it persecuted him, it will persecute the church. Therefore, the church will face tribulation until the end. This tribulation comes in many forms. This dark world, for example, will persecute the church. This is one form of tribulation that the church faces. Yet another form is deception. The world tries to deceive the church into believing false doctrine. And still another form is seduction or temptation. The world tempts the church or seduces her into immoral practices. And this is by and large, these things are by and large what the book of Revelation is all about. It's about preparing the church for the tribulation so that they will be able to persevere unto or until the glorious return of Christ. And Christ, therefore, is tending to his lampstand churches to keep their light burning in the midst of this tribulation that she is facing in the present darkness of this world. Each one of the messages to the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3 is preparing those individual churches and indeed the whole church for this very purpose. Remember, the seven churches represent the whole church, the universal church. And so these seven messages are to the whole church throughout this age. They are just as much for us as it was for them. This morning we begin with the first message to the seven churches. And last Lord's Day we looked at the general pattern for these seven messages. And we saw how each message will have an address to the particular church and its corresponding angel. It will then speak to the situation that that particular church is facing And then it will give the appropriate exhortations to the church. And finally, the church will be summoned to hear with spiritual ears the words of Christ so that she might overcome the darkness of this world and receive eternal life. Now, the first message is addressed to the church at Ephesus and to her corresponding heavenly angel. 
And the speaker identifies himself as the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. And this is, of course, the risen and glorified Christ, the heavenly great high priest who is in charge of the angelic hosts that minister to the churches and who tends to his churches just as, a, as the high priest in the Old Testament tended to the lampstand in the tabernacle and later on in the temple. So Christ, our great high priest, is tending his lampstand churches from his heavenly temple. But he is no absent high priest. We see here that he walks among them. Christ may be bodily in heaven, but he is very much present with his church, walking among them by the activity and power of the Holy Spirit. And since he is present with them, he knows of their circumstances and begins to speak particularly to the situation at Ephesus in verses 2 and 3, saying, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. So he begins by commending the church at Ephesus for their doctrinal precision. The church at Ephesus faced false teaching from both within and from without. Here in verses 2 and 3, he speaks of their testing those who have come to the church from the outside. In the first century, traveling teachers were, were very common amongst the church. And not all of them were actually true teachers in the church. And some had apparently traveled to Ephesus claiming to be apostles. And they weren't necessarily claiming to be part of the twelve apostles. The word apostle simply means one who is sent out. And that word was, was used both narrowly and broadly. Narrowly, the apostles were the twelve disciples of Jesus. But more broadly, it referred to the wider group of apostles that were associated with those twelve disciples. You know, we're talking about apostles then, not who held the office of apostles, such as those twelve men, but those who were associated with them and called by the church to be sent out. People such as Barnabas, Timothy, and Titus. Paul refers to this wider group of apostles, if you want to have a reference, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7. Now the church at Ephesus had tested these so-called, these self-proclaimed apostles. And they examined them in faith and practice, and they found them to be false. They rejected them and could not bear with them because they were evil. In this thread of false teaching or deception will always be present in the church. It's part of what occurs throughout the tribulation of this age. And this threat for the church 
is symbolized in Revelation chapter 13 by the second beast who is called the false prophet. This threat of false teaching can come from outside of the church, such as is the case here, the first part of Revelation chapter 2. Men who are outsiders who are trying to come into the church claiming to be apostles. But this threat of false teaching can also come from within the church as well. Ephesus faced both. They should not have been surprised by this. The elders especially, the elders at Ephesus should not have been too surprised. For Paul in Acts chapter 20 warned them that men from among themselves would rise up speaking twisted truths to draw away the disciples after them. And Christ, here in the book of Revelation, speaks of such men down in verse 6. He says, yet this, I, th- yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now the Nicolaitans were followers of Nicholas of Antioch. And Hippolytus, a 2nd and 3rd century theologian, said that Nicholas had fallen away from true doctrine. So he was, he was a part, and his followers were a part of the church, but had fallen away from true doctrine. And the Nicolaitans, therefore, were those from within the church who lapsed. They had lapsed from or fallen away from true doctrine and were seeking to lead many people away from the truth. We really don't know much about them, but they will resurface again in the message to Pergamum where Christ compares them with Balaam in the Old Testament. If you remember that account, Balaam attempted to convince the king of Moab to lure the Israelites away from God through immorality and idolatry. And so the Nicolaitans held to to, to false doctrine and attempted to seduce Israel the saints at Ephesus, into immoral practices. Put succinctly, they used the weapons of sex and idolatry to lure away those in the Ephesian church. And so Christ commends the church at Ephesus for their doctrinal soundness. Christ hates false doctrine, as he suggests in verse 6, and he commends the church for hating it as well. For hating all false doctrine and the immoral practices that come from them. This church possessed good doctrinal discernment. And they tested those who were attempting to teach false doctrine. And they exposed these false teachers. However, the church at Ephesus was not without their flaws. Christ also rebuked them. He commends them on the one hand for their doctrinal soundness, but he also calls them to repentance. He rebukes them in verse 4 and calls them to repentance in verse 5. He says, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent 
and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. You see, a church that battles false doctrine from without and from within will often be suspicious of others, which makes sense. And that suspicion can lead to a lack of love. And that is the lack of love that Jesus is referring to here. It's not the love that they had for him, for Christ, at first. At least he's not speaking implicitly about that. Because their love for him was demonstrated in their desire to root out all forms of idolatrous doctrines. Rather, he's directly speaking of the love that they had for one another at the first. It was with respect to one another that they had begun to abandon their love. And this is confirmed by the remedy that Christ prescribes. He says, repent and do the works. It could also be translated the deeds. Do the works, do the deeds that you did at first. Well, with regard to sound doctrine, they were doing good works and good deeds by testing others. And so the works and the deeds that they did at first toward one another is to what he is referring. He's referring specifically to their service towards one another, their labor of love towards one another. And John, the author of the book of Revelation, the one who writes down uh, the words of this revelation, speaks to this kind of love in his first epistle, 1 John chapter 3 and verses 16 and 17. And he says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed. There's that word again, but in deed or in works and in truth. And so the remedy for this lack of love was very simple. Repent. That's the remedy. The remedy was repentance. Turning from their loveless ways unto a love that expresses itself in service and good deeds or in good works towards one another. It is a love that was modeled for us by Christ who came and laid down his life for us. If we are in Christ, then his love abides in us, which should be expressed through our willingness to lay down our lives for the brothers through service and good deeds. Now, the necessity of a love that expresses itself in action is demonstrated, I mean, the necessity of this is demonstrated by Christ's warning that he will remove the lampstand at Ephesus if they do not repent. It's necessary. This love is necessary. Apart from it, their lampstand will be removed. And therefore, they could lose their status as a church if they did not repent. And so this called for spiritual discernment. 
They must heed Christ's word by the power of the Spirit and must overcome, they must conquer all that is evil and against them. They must overcome or conquer the enemy. And Christ closes this letter by saying, to the one who conquers, I actually prefer to translate that overcomes, though either is fine. I wish uh, certain translations would just use one because the same words used uh, similarly in many places. To the one who overcomes, or to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, you should remember the tree of life in Genesis chapters 2 and 3. We read at least a portion of scripture on the tree of life earlier in the service. And you might remember that if Adam had been obedient to God, he would have been permitted to eat of the tree of life of life and thus receive life in abundance with God forever in heaven. But because he was disobedient, he and his wife were exiled from the garden. And God placed, if you remember, a cherubim, an angelic being, a, a celestial being, we should say, with a flaming sword to guard the way to that tree of life. Because of mankind's fall into sin, no one had access any longer to the life of abundance that was symbolized by that tree. But God so loved the world that he sent his only son. That the way might be opened, the way to eternal life has been opened. Through Christ and his work. Because he is the way. The truth. And the life. No one comes to the father. Except through him. Why? Why was this the way that opened the truth? That opened the way to the tree of life? That opened the way to eternal life in heaven? Well because... In his love for us, he laid down his life as a substitutionary atonement in our place. That our sins might be forgiven. Through faith in him, you see, we have the pardon of our sins, the forgiveness of our sins, and possess his righteousness that we might have life everlasting. We are not righteous in and of ourselves. Left to ourselves, we too hate the light and love our evil deeds. We love the darkness. And we are not righteous, but walk in evil. But yet he came into the one that he gives life. He allows those to trust in faith in his work and he gives to them his righteousness. 1 John chapter 5 verses 4 and 5 says, For everyone who has been born of God, here's that word, overcomes this world. Or conquers this world. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has Overcome the world, our faith. 
Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? 1 John 5, 4 through 5. You see, we overcome or conquer through our faith, a faith that perseveres through the tribulation that we experience in this dark world. Now, beloved, the church in the 21st century faces the same temptations and tribulations as Ephesus did in the first century. And that's why Christ summoned the churches, not just Ephesus, but all the churches, even us today, to heed what the Spirit is saying to the churches. We need to take the example of the church at Ephesus and the example that they gave to us of fighting for true doctrine. Doctrinal precision is a good thing. Ephesus was commended for it. They had struggled against false teaching that came from outside of the church and from within it. And we must join them in that fight. We must continue that fight that they themselves were fighting. Jude commands his readers in verse 3 to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. To contend, that's, that is a fighting word. To contend with an adversary. We must fight the doctrinal battle against the enemy who wages war against us from within and from without the church. We must be militant in our battle for sound doctrine. But... It must be a loving militancy. And that is incredibly important. A church that vigorously defends sound doctrine can become fatigued a little bit. And as a result become feeble in their love for one another. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24 verses 9 through 12. Then they will deliver you up to, what? Tribulation. And put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And listen, many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. You see, a church that is in constant battle, facing false doctrine, can become tired and grow cold in love. Now, some would say that the church facing such circumstances should then ease up on the fight for doctrine. As if that is the remedy for the lack of love. They might suggest that love is what is most important, not doctrine. And so lighten up on the doctrine so that we might have more room for love. But let's think about that for just a moment. Is that what Jesus exhorts Ephesus to do? No, 
Christ commends them in their fight for sound doctrine. Christ did not say, listen, you have done well in this fight for doctrine. Take a break now so that you can increase your love for one another. No, the remedy was simply to repent of their lack of love. And so vigorously fighting for doctrine may bring with it the temptation to grow cold in love, but we must overcome the temptation while maintaining our fight for doctrine. Now, some will respond, well, what good is doctrine if there is no love? And to that we say, amen. What good is it without love? But we can also say the same in the reverse. What good is love without the proper doctrine? Beloved, we do not know what love is apart from doctrine. God's word defines what love is. Without doctrine, we don't know the first thing about love. You see, God is love. And in this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That he sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. 1 John 4, 9. God has taught us what true love is. Now the world has perverted and twisted what love is. For they reject not only God's definition of love, but they reject even God who himself is love. For instance, there is a slogan used by the LGBTQ plus community to define in their assessment what true love is. And the slogan says, love is love. Maybe you've seen it on a shirt, maybe on a, a board of protestation. Love is love. And they interpret this phrase as suggesting that the love expressed by an individual or couple is valid regardless of the sexual orientation or gender identity of the lover or partner. Now, my friends, without maintaining the proper doctrine of Scripture on love, we would have to accept that definition of love as valid. But we know that this is the false teaching of the world. Love is not just some emotion or feeling that we have for someone. And since no one can deny those feelings, they cannot deny our love. Our feelings can be right or wrong. They are right if they come from the truth. And from where does the origin of truth come? It comes from the one who made all truth who is himself truth and who has revealed truth and love to us in his son. For God, who is love, has demonstrated his love by sending his own son to die so that we might live. Not so that we might live in sin, gratifying our own selfish and perverted desires, but so that we might live to please God. 
That's what the Apostle John tells us in 1 John 5, 3. He says, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. True love, you see, is not some subjective feeling. But is an objective truth that is expressed in action. And ultimately the act of obedience to God. My friends, God has taught us the truth about male and female. He has taught us the wonderful truths about sexual relations in marriage between a biological man and woman. He has taught us all of his commands. And he didn't give them to us to be burdensome. He gave them to us so that we might delight in obeying him who is our creator and redeemer who loved the dark world and sent his son into it, demonstrating his love that those who are united to him might live forever. What love is this? We need these doctrines and we need the love of God to abide in us so that we might keep these doctrines. So that we might shine bright reflecting the glory of him who showed his own love by laying down his life for us. To him be all praise and glory now and forevermore. Amen. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for the love you have shown us. We thank you. That you are God above. That you are love. That you can therefore teach us and show us what love is. And may we hold fast to those truths. And to all of your holy truth that you have revealed to us in the holy scriptures. May we continue to contend for those truths diligently, militantly, but also in love. Speaking the truth in love so that we are not swept away from every wind and wave of doctrine. Teach us, O God, the truth so that we might respond in willingness to lay down our love and our lives for the brothers. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.